0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
2: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in toronto and of course anywhere across the country if you download the radio player canada app and then type in those coordinates plus elmntfm and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day folks 24 hours a day seven days a week right across the country it's a pleasure to welcome you all back to moment of truth of course but it's also a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show uh I believe we've had Krista on once before, Krista Couture. She is um, uh, also part of the Element FM team here, and so it's always a pleasure to have uh, her back and also to just, uh, ex, you know, just to share experiences that uh, our fellow uh, workers are doing. Krista is, is no stranger to broadcasting. She's a musician. She's a performer. She's a, uh, as I say, a broadcaster and a nonfiction writer, and that's why we have her on the show today. Krista has just come out with a new book. It is called How to Lose Everything. So it's a pleasure to have uh, Krista with us. And and Krista, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, Krista, uh, I have to say right off the top that um, reading your book, uh, I I guess you don't leave uh, very much on the cutting floor. It seems to me that you put (laughs) almost everything in there.
0: I mean, it's interesting because it. I mean, there's lots, there's a lot that's not in there. And I I could Mm, write an even sadder book, I think. But I I think what I like that people have that reaction is that tells me that I've achieved the vulnerability that I was going for. You know, I wanted it to be open. I wanted it to be genuine. And even though I was very careful and considered and crafted about what I included and what I left out. Um I still wanted it to feel like I was I was sharing a lot so I'm glad that comes across.
2: Yeah, well, I mean it, it does and and I realize that uh your life is is longer than the pages of, you know, in this book in terms of the writing <laughs> that goes into it and the things that you could have written about absolutely. Uh I get that. Um however, uh, having said that, it, you know, just from reading the book and what you had to contend with uh you know it it makes me realize that you you looked at life from a very uh, very different uh you know lens and and that has, that allowed you to to write this in the way that you did of course and uh just before we get further into that i think we've intrigued people a little bit with this i'm going to just talk a little bit about The kind of things that Krista talks about in her book, as I said, it's called How to Lose Everything, through her son's heart transplant, his death, his brother's single day of life, the amputation of her leg and a cure for bone cancer, abortion, divorce, and a move across the country to start all over. Uh, Krista has come to know every corner of grief, its shifting blurry edges, its traps, its pulse of love and the, at the center, and its bittersweet truth that resilience is born of suffering. And you also talk about this in the book, and that is that You don't find that there is no happy ending. For instance, the amputation of your leg, uh, that loss. But that loss was also the cure that allowed you to live.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting that the word loss is kind of inadequate. It has so many different uses. You know, I say Mm. the loss of my leg. And of course, Mm. you know, it's nothing compared to the loss of my two sons. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one was a a surgery (laughs) and two was, you know, their their deaths and there's also you know losing keys like like the loss is this word that we use in so many ways and it can mean it can mean a lot of different things and totally for with my bone cancer I mean the amputation of my leg was was a loss and I did have to grieve that transition and I was also very very lucky that there was a cure for my cancer because of course a lot of people with cancer there isn't a cure and mm-hmm. i was a kid when i had cancer and a lot mm-hmm. of my friends in the hospital didn't survive and and so i was very aware that i was incredibly lucky um to have a cure so yeah i, I mean in the book i kind of talk about the two sides of that because mm-hmm. i'm i'm grateful for it <laughs> i am grateful for that loss and so there's there's some losses that you know point you in a better direction And then some losses that will always hurt your heart.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I I guess that's, I'm glad you you mentioned that. I was going to ask you about that or or mention it, that that you were a child, about uh, 12 or 13, I believe, when this happened. Mm
0: -hmm. I I first was diagnosed with bone cancer when I was 11. And then after chemotherapy and radiotherapy, the surgery was, yeah, 13.
2: Yeah. And and you talk about your life at that point. You were in, in hospital, I guess, for about a year and a half.
0: Yeah, in and out. I mean, the chemotherapy treatments were every three weeks, or they were supposed mm-hmm. to be, and so I'd be kind of in for a week and home for two weeks, and then in for a few days, and and um, so it felt like mostly, mostly in the hospital. <laughs>
2: yeah, Chris, I, you talk a little bit about it, but being a child and, and being child going through that experience. Um, you do allude to going to school. You talk about uh, the lump on your leg before you lost the amputation and, and how you kind of had kids, you know, poke at it and, and, and those kind of things that, that you bring us into that experience with you. But I'm wondering, once that began, once the, the chemo began and you were going through this year and a half of experience, what what was it like for you? trying to attend school, just learn things. How was that in terms of just dealing with the physicality of what you were going through and trying to, you know, go to school at the same time?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think through that, my mom and my teachers, like me being at school, it was less important that I was (laughs) keeping up with, with the Mm. schoolwork. I mean, I did fine. Um, You know, it was grade six, seven, but um, Mm -hmm. and more that I was having a touchstone of, of being with my friends and having a bit of a, you know, so-called normal life. I mean, I think at the time at first, when I was first diagnosed and first on chemotherapy the kids in my class we already you know for the most part grown up together and we all lived in that neighborhood and and so they kind of got used to it with me and Mm. and it became normal that I was at school and then gone for a week and normal that I was bald eventually and and we kind of we kind of learned about it together but then I changed schools um shortly before chemotherapy ended and suddenly I was a total outsider. <laughs> I was now, there was now no one who had been through it with me. Like mm-hmm. certainly not the kids in my class and then, or, you know, the kids within the hospital, like we there, there's a kind of real strong community with the other sick kids because <laughs> you're all sick together. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I changed schools, I became very aware that the experience I'd had was uncommon and I was, I felt kind of on a parallel path. And I, I definitely missed out. I mean, I missed out on you know, everyone else was having first girlfriends and boyfriends. And I was, you know, facing death, <laughs> just it was yeah. like a very different like, adolescent experience. I mean, adolescence for everyone is messy and hard and is a huge transformation. Mm. And so I also was going through a huge transformation. Um, but it was it was quite different than most people around me.
2: Yeah, you know, and I think it's, it's interesting how what you have ended up doing in terms of your, your life choices. The fact that you are a, a singer-songwriter, the fact that you are uh, someone that, that speaks out uh, uh, on, on many fronts in terms of the, the many parts of, of who you are. Whether it to being as you've you've uh, addressed in the past and in other uh, areas when you're you're out uh, in public, um, whether it be uh, as an amputee or whether it be as a woman or whether it be as queer or whether it be uh, as as a woman who has lost uh, children, uh, any of those things they make up the entire uh, Christa Couture that that we have come to know. That goes back to another part of the book that you refer to, and and that is. Um, Senebe, your name, your, your traditional name that you were given when you were very young. You know, your, your traditional name I will says you will sing a lot, you will talk a lot. You didn't quite understand that originally. Um, and it was only later on after you had an issue with your thyroid, I believe, you had a, a, a thyroidectomy, which affected your ability to, to sing immediately. And uh, you weren't able to sing at, at an event. And you then requested, could you come out and, and, and talk?
0: <laughs> yeah, I was booked to perform at Idea City, which is Moses Nimer's like TED talky thing. Mm-hmm. And I said yes, even though I knew it was after the surgery. I didn't know that my my voice would be so impacted. Um and so I, I did sing two songs. I really faked it. You can find there's a video of it on YouTube. <laughs> and then I just talked a lot. And but through that, I was like, hey, I, I think I like this talking thing. I still have a microphone. I still have an audience. I can I can still do my thing that I do through music, but I can do it through talking, um, which yeah, in the in the book, I, I reflect on how that still is um, a reflection of my name of, of being singing woman
2: yeah because you didn't uh it it, it wasn't it it didn't dawn on you at the time that that singing might be in a professional capacity that you might be sharing stories you thought it was just that you were pretty chatty
0: (laughs) exactly I I mean that that was like the prediction I was like oh you know Raymond the elder um he just was like oh she's chatty but but it's not I don't that's not what it was it's that I have different ways of sharing my story
2: some of the things you talk about in the book it, it I get the very sense that you're you're not a, a strong believer in the afterlife or necessarily in God per se. Uh, you know from what you have written and how you've written it, but at the same time, that particular experience with this um, uh, this woman that you had a call with that your mom set you up with for I guess it was a birthday gift, correct? To have a a séance or or some kind of oh a the call astrology
0: with reading, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the astrology reading. I thought it was really interesting that 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 woman saw that you know that children would be important in your life. And, and um and you said, "Well, that's that's impossible at the time, right?"
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was in my early 20s and at that point I thought um because of the chemotherapy that it would be difficult or m- maybe not possible for me to mm. have children of my own or to mm-hmm. conceive children. Um which turned out not to be true. I had a total of four pregnancies three of them unplanned (laughs) Mm, but mm. you know so the doctors were wrong about that I am and she was (laughs) right I mean yeah it's interesting those pieces are interesting and even being Sany Bay you know which means singing woman and and Mm -hmm. when I was given that name uh you know my family was told she'll sing a lot and she'll talk a lot and that's my my role you know in this world those are my gifts in this world and I feel I feel very lucky and grateful that through all of these losses, that I've had an outlet, you know, for me, it happens to be music, and now writing this book, um, that I have these ways of sharing my experiences th- and processing them. And not just, pro- I mean, you can go to therapy and process them. And I do that too. <laughs> I've been very mm-hmm. lucky to have the resources of, of good therapists. But mm. um, I I don't just, you know, express them, I I shape them, and I craft them, and I get to turn them into works of art and there's a kind of you know piecing of things together that for me has been very healing and very powerful after you know the experiences of falling apart particularly with the deaths of my two sons i mean those are experiences mm. that 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 destroyed me and so in getting to create art it's 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 a literal piecing of things together and creating things and so um yeah I feel I feel like I've been lucky to have that outlet. I think not everyone has that or maybe not everyone knows what it is. I mean for some people that's cooking, you know, they get to go to the kitchen and just, you know, kind of lose themselves in mm-hmm. in what they're making, you know. And I I just feel grateful that I I I kind of knew what to turn to. I knew what my thing was <laughs> and yeah. I was able to to use it and it I mean it's been a big part of my for a long time my survival and then eventually part of my um,
2: you know, thriving um, you know when you say that, you, you talk about uh, the loss uh, of your children and and it also go- reminds me about uh, other other indigenous uh, beliefs uh, around children and and I'm sure you know this that, that the indigenous belief is that uh, the children actually choose the parents mm-hmm. and, they're, and, and that they come to the parents and that, and, that, and that children are gifts. And you refer to this in in the book, of course, as well. I did find it really interesting um, because I had not thought about this in the way it was that you you brought it forward in the book um, about children as as gifts. But it was turned around from an elder, I believe, that you were talking to, that said, "Their their gifts to you are are kind of like what you are doing now." It, Mm-hmm. something you know
0: and I, I think that about uh, I mean and where I tell that scene in the stories in regards to um, yes, the abortion that I had in my 20s mm. but I think about that with my my two sons as well because I I I am grateful that they chose me and I, the way that I kind of think about it is because for a long time I was like well who made the bad choice that they weren't going to survive I don't, mm. I don't like that I don't want this mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but but, you know, I don't think it's that literal. And, um, you know, it's it's not like they're a person that I can sit down and, and negotiate that the the good and bad choices we all made, but they they chose me and this is what happened. And so for me, the gifts of, of their lives, the gifts of those two children were, you know, that I get to feel love for them, that I uh, found the bounds of my resilience that I learned a lot about grief and I saw more in other people than I had before. And so, yeah, I think that the, you know, the gifts of our children, the gifts that children are um, to everyone and in this world, you know, the magical creatures of little babies, um, there's lots of ways that those gifts can be seen. And I think Mm -hmm. also my kids were gifts to my family. I mean, they they gave to my community, you know, by their presence. And um, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely, I mean, it's not that I agree. It's true. We know that it's true. You're right. This is the teaching that we're, is shared with us. And then uh, I got to experience it.
2: Mm-hmm. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM and Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: It's a pleasure to have with us uh, on the show uh, uh, someone that uh, works at the station. She's a fellow uh, broadcaster here at Element FM, Krista Couture. But uh, Krista Couture is so much more than that. She is an award-winning performing and recording artist, non-fiction writer, as I mentioned off the top of the show, as we know, a broadcaster. Uh, She also refers to herself as a cyborg. Uh, We're going to get to that in a little bit and and why and how that came about because it's quite a fascinating story. She's uh, also proudly uh, uh, indigenous, a mixture of the Cree and Scandinavian backgrounds, queer, and a mum. And her fourth album, "Long Time Leaving," was released in 2016. But she's got a, a new album uh, that has uh, has dropped. Uh, Chris, it's already dropped, right? It's uh, that came out in
0: that. March on Coke's Safe, Records. Safe it's Harbor. called Safe Harbor
2: safe harbor and i have to tell you that i really love the way that it, it looks on your uh you're on your your com site now out on cd vinyl and cassette
0: <laughs> it is it is we went for all the all the mediums
2: that's great <laughs> cassette i haven't seen that for years that's why that's, i didn't right? know they were still making them are they still making them are they wow that's
0: yeah cool. it's like a, it's a niche thing people are into it it's funny
2: Well, I knew vinyl was, that's for sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. But cassette, okay. Is 8-track next?
0: (laughs) May may well be. (laughs) Uh,
2: So, so Krista, you know, uh, Cyborg... Um, uh, referring to yourself as cyborg and that of course has to do with the fact that you uh, your um your appendage that you have your leg that was <laughs> amputated and, and the 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 one that you you beautifully decorated that you now uh have with you For a number of years ago you were you were trying out because your the original first leg you had you had the one that was strapped onto your waist i believe
0: in the beginning yeah i mean there's a few different types of of uh, sockets and ways that mm. a, a prosthesis can stay on. So mm-hmm. I am a, an above knee amputee. And so my prosthetic, leg an option is a belt around the waist. There's also mm. something called a suction socket. There's suspension sockets. So there's like these different types, um, of, of keep just, you know, keeping it on because it sucks when mm. it falls off. Mm-hmm um but the belt i mean the belt was not ideal but i think you know i mean that was almost 30 years ago it was mm. but it was a, a, a kind of a good starter like it was one that was easy to get on and off and right. um didn't cause like a lot of skin problems i didn't start calling myself cyborg until I mean, probably six years ago or so i mean by definition if you wear glasses you're a cyborg i mean it, it's a <laughs> it's a you know combination of biology and technology yes. but because yeah. of Hollywood, we tend to think of, you know, Robocop and Terminator. And and mm-hmm. I realized that if I called myself a cyborg, that it kind of inspired this sort Ooh, right, right. <laughs> this impressive kind of robotic um, superhero vibe. And I liked that. And mm-hmm. and so I started playing with it just as a way of playing with the language. I mean, mm-hmm. I I use mostly identity first language. I'm a disabled person, not a person with disability. I'm an amputee. That sounds very mm-hmm. medical, though it's accurate. I mean, my leg was amputated. That's just the word. Um, but cyborg is, was kind of a fun way to play with and describe mm-hmm. only having one leg and having a mm-hmm. prosthetic leg. And, right. um, it just kind of changes the tone of of the conversations, but I like it. And, and it makes yeah. me feel like I'm a superhero.
2: But it also has to do with the fact that you have this updated uh, prosthesis that that actually helps you walk now, right? It's and, and it's really interesting how you came about uh, gaining that uh, because you were trying out a couple of these these things uh, and you 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 know because they I guess the original one that you had it would not provide you any resistance if it if it uh, bent. It would collapse. These the new ones that you were trying out all have some kind of a built-in resistance, so it's more like a natural knee uh, um, movement and helps you stand better. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, the ones that um, the knees that I had for many years before I got what's called a microprocessor knee. you know, if the if you stand on it with the knee straight, it holds. It, but if mm. you happen to put weight on it while it's swinging or while it's bent, yeah, it would it would collapse. And a reality of being an amputee is that you fall a lot. It's just a thing. it's a thing that happens. Right. And so I got this microprocessor knee, and, and it totally it was. Now that I have something that I have to plug in at night, that mm. you know beeps when the battery is dying, and <laughs> that I that I really start to feel more robotic. Um, and yeah, the, the knee was life-changing because I don't fall as often. And that's, that's actually what it comes down to, but it is lovely to not
2: fall over all the time. Uh, I'm I'm (laughs) sure it is. It it would just
0: take up time in my day. Now I'm, now I just can keep walking.
2: And, you know, you refer to that as well. This is, this is what I really like about, about the book and, and how you refer to things and how you talk about things. Uh, you take us into these nuances of thought around, around your experience such as that you know you, you talk about how it's wonderful that um, that that technology and humans can adapt and and we can come up with these things that that allow us to do these uh, and move forward and 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 have the kind of uh prosthesis that you have uh, but that's the story around that is of course that you were trying these out and they're not Inexpensive. They're very expensive. This particular one you were, you were looking at, you you kind of said something about it on on, uh, on on social media, and somebody came up with the idea to to have a uh, do a do a fundraiser for you.
0: That's right. So the, the microprocessor knees, yeah, they can range from $25,000 to $60,000, and they're not covered by healthcare. care. Um, some, like I think WGC like, covers them, the military covers them. So mm. some people get them, but um, I, I didn't have access to that funding. And so I had tried the knees just kind of for kicks, <laughs> no mm-hmm. pun intended, but um, – to, just to have the experience of to see what these microprocessor needs were like, and you get to try it for two weeks, then you have to send it back. And I had posted on Facebook that I felt like I was, you know, uh, the turning back into a pumpkin, you know, Cinderella's mm-hmm. chariot or whatever. And I was just sharing that online, as you do. Um, but all of these people chimed in, I think because they hadn't thought before about you know, the fact that I can only go, I used to only be able to go downstairs one at a time, or I even realized in sharing that a lot of people didn't know I only had one leg, like a lot of people within the folk mm-hmm. music and, you know, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And there was this outpouring of support to do something so that I could keep the knee. <laughs> and so, right. yeah, they came up with this thing. We called it the knee raiser. It was a crowdfunding right. campaign. All of these um, musicians chipped in perks that could be sent out. Um, there was like, some a chocolatier made these leg-shaped chocolates. There was all kinds of custom things you could get by contributing, and and we we met met our uh, fundraising goal in like a couple of days. And so I sometimes call it the knee that folk music bought because it was really <laughs> the music community that like swept in mm-hmm. and contributed and and made it possible. And so not only was getting the knee wonderful to have this technology. Um, It was also a really beautiful experience to just feel so supported uh, by Mm -hmm. my community. And I think, I mean, the the knee raiser happened um, maybe four years after my son Ford had died. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at that point was six, seven years after my son Emmett had died. And I think it was Mm -hmm. also just, it was finally a way for peripheral people in my life to feel like they could do something for me, something concrete. Um, I think I've learned you know we want to help each other and often with the biggest hardest things we don't always know what to do and a lot of people never knew what to do for me they didn't know what to say they didn't know how to help and mm. th- they couldn't really but this was suddenly a way that they could give me something and so it was not just getting the knee but it was feeling the love of all of these people around me and and feeling their support and and feeling you know, that they wanted me to be helped and be as okay as possible. And so it was a mm. really moving uh, experience. Mm.
2: Yeah, and you point that out in the book, uh, as you do with, with other things as well, uh, about uh, being aware of other people. And I think that that's part of what your experiences have. And that's part of what I think is that this unique perspective that you bring through the book is that these experiences have, have not only even through, through the grief that you've gone through and, and the things that you've dealt with, you, you still see other people. You, you, you see other people's uh, pain. You see other people's uh, uh, trying, as you just pointed out. You see how they were, they didn't know how to help, but this, this was finally somewhere they, they could see that they could, they could help, and they did. And, and, and you, you point to those kind of things, like the people um, whose, whose heart you got from uh, as a donor, And you, you thought about them at the time as well. Um, You thought about them, about their loss, and you Mm -hmm. thought about what they were giving to you and your son. Um, And you know that was—it's really touching to see that uh, throughout the book.
0: Mm Hmm. And I'm glad that that comes through. I mean, I think. You know what is this life if we're not like infinitely connected to each other? And um, loss, in some ways, is so isolating. I think grief can be a kind of exile. You can feel like you're alone on an island. Um, But at the same time, there's a way that being in grief is—you know—you're not alone. And um, and everyone experiences grief, and everyone knows a bit of it. You know, even though we all have our own own losses um, and challenges, but so yeah but I think you know like I was even kind of saying the, the gifts that i've I've been given through my children is like learning to see more and more of that learning to see more and more of the the tenderness and the the softness of of each other um, and just the ways that you know life can change in a second
2: yeah um yeah I- something not in the book and again I alluded to this a little bit but I'm I'm just wondering because of the experiences that you you've gone through um how how do you now you, you talked about the love you talked about how you know we're in this together how do you how do you perceive uh, the bigger picture of things now
0: um you know I mean I I I I don't believe in an afterlife, I'm a bit more scientific. I feel like for me, because I've been with death, I've I've been, and not just my children, but when I was a kid and there was other kids around me Mm. who were dying, Mm -hmm. uh, for me in that moment, in that incredibly palpable and powerful moment of transition when you can feel and everything in your body can feel that that person is gone, that they have taken their last breath. I mean, everything changes in that moment. And so for me in that moment, what I have felt is that, you know, that that energy of that person kind of it is absorbed. That we all take it in, and and it stays with us. Um, and so I see us connected in in those ways. But I've never felt like there's a grand plan or um, a destiny. Um, and and so far, my experiences are are proving my personal. <laughs> Thesis, but you know, I know that everyone people have different takes on that. But to mm-hmm. me, it's like the the meaning of it, or the bigger picture, is just that we're here now, and uh, I think the most meaningful thing we can do with our time is connect with each other, and and I think our relationships are the most important and valuable, you know, part of our lives, including the relationship with ourself, and it's just a matter of. Trying to be present with those things and and tend to them and enjoy the tending, um, and then you know let it go. And then the people that we you know when we leave before the ones around us, like they'll have to let us go.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as I was reading uh, the book and what you were just saying there, I I was also wondering, and I'm not trying to get into a big philosophical uh, perspective of a a conversation with you on on this or or anything, but I I just, I was also thinking because uh, of this and because of what you talked about, living in the present and, and making the best out of the moment, that I thought, Hmm. I wonder what Krista thinks uh, of, of pettiness. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: pettiness? Gosh, that I'm not above it. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh,
2: interesting, you know, but, but I mean, you know, I was in- thinking...
0: It's interesting with grief and with, with belief systems because, you know, I talk, there's, I think, a scene or two in the book about uh, that take place at the um, Bereaved Parent Support Group at the Children's mm. Hospice in Vancouver. And I saw in the two years that I went to that group, almost every single person... Questioned their belief system. So whether they went, if they went in there with a strong faith, you know whatever that faith was, th- mm. that loss of their child brought it into question. And sometimes on the other side of it, they they lost that faith. Or some yeah. people, you know, who before they lost a child were an atheist or you know maybe agnostic at best, and and then through the loss of the child, they found faith because there's you know when you you're set on a path of like a, a deep questioning and trying to find meaning in something that. Feels so meaningless and you feel so powerless and faith comes into it and the, you know, philosophy Mm -hmm. comes into it. And I I saw a lot of people kind of switching teams there, you know, finding something else because what they thought before didn't work, which I find really interesting. And kind of for me, my beliefs stayed a bit consistent, but that's not to say there wasn't a questioning and there wasn't. Right you know, uh, a a looking for an explanation in in my framework, Um, Mm. because that's a big, yeah, it's a big part of how we cope. It's a big part of how we we look at our losses and our experiences.
2: You know, it's interesting to hear you say that, because ultimately, uh, what you have have come away with uh, from your experiences, this, what you have been through, could have devastated, and you did. You were devastated, as you said, by the 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 death of your your children, as anyone would be. But even even though you have the view that there may not be an afterlife, there may not be a creator or or a god or or anything like that, you still have this this belief in in life and to carry on and be present in the moment and to make the best out of things, which is, I think, in itself quite endearing and and quite. Uh, inspirational i guess uh uh if i may use the term to to say you know <laughs> yeah, about and what you
0: know so it might be splitting hairs like i think as far as language like i think for some people mm. that is you know a, a faith that is a sense of creator is you know having a sense of you know life and and mm. a faith in that mm. things will change um so sometimes i think it's just like finding the language you like you know
2: mm. mm-hmm mm-hmm uh, now krista i know that um that but you you wanted to look between the the happy ending and the dire end. You, you, you looked at uh, you, you know I heard you talk about this a little bit that you're looking for the messy middle here on mm-hmm. on how to how how for us to move forward in life.
0: Yeah, and the idea of the messy middle is something I got from Eli Clare, whose uh, book Brilliant Imperfection was uh, so is so valuable and important to me, and I and I've held on to that idea because I think it's. The one that's most attainable you know mm. we are in this messy middle and there isn't always a clear definition um and and things shift and we have you know good days and bad days and um i also t- i often talk about things being different not better and i think that's for me where i found a kind of peace um and and um, you know what we could probably call hope um in being here in being present and in moving forward because things some things in my life won't get better they can't get better you know mm. um but they can be different and i think especially in our western culture and the kind of you know good vibes only stuff People want it to all be better. (laughs) And it doesn't Mm. work with grief necessarily. It doesn't work with disability. Um, There's a lot of places that we can't achieve that. And and if we put an emphasis on better, it actually just makes everything worse. Like it kind of adds suffering to your suffering. And Mm. so for me to say, but it could be different, opened up possibilities, and as soon as I could think, oh, there's some possibility, then I could kind of exhale and think about the next moment, the next day, mm. you know, when mm. I was in my kind of harder, darker stretches. Um, but I think it just allows us to be more open to what, you know, is <laughs> and open mm. to an unknown because, um, you know, things also might get worse, but they could still be different. <laughs> so it's right. like uh, that's I, I hope that's a kind of a takeaway in the book of just like an acceptance of. Of where we're at, and it's you're right. It's not a happy ending, but it's not, um, you know, a, a totally heartbreaking, devastating ending. There's something where we can hold all of this stuff at once. At least I think we can.
2: Right, uh, Chris, we're getting close to the end of our time, uh, and and what is it that you were, aside from what you just said, if if at all, that you wanted people to take away from the book?
0: I mean, I hope that. People either, you know, depending on their own losses, see themselves reflected in the book a bit. I wanted to Mm -hmm. offer something that could be a friend uh Mm. to people who are grieving whatever their their loss is or if they're just curious about me if they're just curious about what these experiences are like but i kind of have this image that i'm like holding my sad stories in my hands and i'm saying here look like you don't have to touch it don't worry and i'm not going to drop it on your lap like you can look and i kind of what i'm hoping that people will get out of it is that they'll also in turn want to hold their own sad stories up you know in a way that we can honor each other
2: hmm interesting um, well, I have to, I, I want to say, uh, you know, and chi, and, chi and thank you for not only being on the show, but allowing me uh, to to feel better about the interview. Because I have to say, when I was starting this and, and reading the book, I felt very heavy <laughs> mm. because of the information, not because I found it sad, uh, you know, or, or uh, and it was, of course, in parts, and, and it, you know, but. It's just that I was uh, I was overwhelmed with with the story in itself and and you know all that you have gone through. Mm, and yeah and, you know and, and I wanted to be very uh, uh, cognizant uh, of how you know how I approached that with you. I wasn't sure how you still felt about this because I'm sure that your kids you still agree for your children uh, even now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I'm with this. A lot of people are very cautious. I'm, well, you're not the only person in an interview to say, <laughs> "Okay, I'm a little nervous <laughs> here because I don't want to, you know, hurt you." Basically, yeah. I think because it's like there's an awareness of of sure. of the tenderness and the rawness. But mm. you know, I I had enough time beyond these experiences to write this book and if mm. I wasn't okay if I was still in like the throes of it I, I couldn't have written it and mm. you know so the book is the it's an invitation I, I invite the questions and I, right. I invite people's curiosity about it and I think I mean one of the reviews I think it's on the back is like something about how it's a sad story but it's a delight to read like mm. I, I hope that that is true for people and you know kind of like you said because there is sadness and there is heaviness but I mm. I worked very hard to craft it in a way that wouldn't feel, you know, like a burden, you know, that I, mm-hmm. again, I'm showing you something that you don't have to take it. It's still mine. Don't worry.
2: <laughs> right. You're going to have an event coming up, I think, on the 23rd.
0: Yes, the launch event is September twenty third. Um, the there's an Eventbrite. You can get the tick. You can get the book through the ticket price, or just join us on Zoom. I'll be in conversation with Hannah Sung, and we'll have some musical guests, including Julian Taylor and the Lifers. And uh, yeah, it's this Wednesday at seven thirty. It's happening on Zoom, and you can get tickets online.
2: Julian Taylor. Yeah, you know that know guy. That guy. I think we know that guy. Yeah.
0: That's it. I hope as many people can join us Wednesday night and that I hope people, you know, they, the book resonates with them, that they reach out to me. And I love hearing from people. So you can find me online on all the things at Christ Couture.
2: And, and by the way, uh, for people that aren't going to be able to get to the book launch and or are maybe outside of our, our uh, immediate listening area that are online, they can pick up the book where?
0: Um, any Canadian bookstore, also Amazon.ca and Indigo.
2: All right. Take care. Don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break with Mark Bowden, who is an expert in body language communication. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Then type in one of those two coordinates as well as E L M N T F M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. Mark Bowden. Uh, he is a leading expert in body language. And he's a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, a TEDx Toronto speaker, and uh, he heads up Truth Plain uh, organization that uh, that that. He has, And he's had a lot of people from looking at the stuff that Mark has done. uh, He has uh, has had the chance to work with a great many people uh, on the global uh, front. And so it's a pleasure to have him here so we can talk a little bit about body language. Uh, More so now that we're into the COVID-19 situation, we're all sort of isolating as well. But we're also covering ourselves up with masks as we go out. And how is communication affected by that kind of thing? And we're going to explore that a little bit as well. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you here. You know, as I looked at your website and going through, uh, you certainly have uh, had the opportunity to work with a great number of influential people around the globe. Yeah, yeah,
1: I've I've, uh, I've worked with You know, anything from very new entrepreneurs who might have um, uh, be trying to communicate about some new products out there to some that you would have in your hands right now to people who are literally running countries. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people who are running uh, large organizations and, and people who might be professors. And so it's a vast range of people who have exactly the same problem which is how do you stand out and win trust and gain credibility in an environment whereby there's so much information coming at people and and how do we know who to trust and why we trust them
2: you know that's uh, all of those points are, are things i hope we can we can touch on on a little bit but if we
3: can go back how does someone get into this line of work that you found you find yourself in now Well, lots of different ways. However, the way that I got into it was, as a kid, I was
1: just obsessed with human movement and influence and persuasion and telling stories with pictures. And so I went down this route of trying to understand biology and art as well. And simply, what is it about human beings that can influence and persuade and convince others just by the movement of our body and the movement of our face? Because we've all met people who we go... I really trust them. I think they're a really good person. We've all met people who we go, yeah, I'm not quite sure whether I should trust that person. And you know what? Sometimes we've been right and sometimes we've been wrong about those assumptions. I'm just super interested in how and why we
3: make those assumptions and can they be influenced in any way. And so when you started to explore this, you, you started obviously to discover some things. What were the first things you found that made sense to you when you went, hey, yeah, this, this is real? Well, one of the most important things I discovered was is that we all make assumptions
1: about other people based on their behavior. We decide very instantly, is this person a friend to us? Can we trust them? Are they going to be good for us and our friends and family? Do we think they're part of our social group? Or do we think already that they are outliers to that social group or dangerous to that social group? Or we just get that sense immediately that they're not a good person. And we do that based on their behavior, not on what they say. And we can make that decision within about a 50th of a second. And mm. our decision is you, is either right or wrong or something in between, but it tends to default to a lot of negatives simply to keep us safe rather than accurate. Our instinct would rather
3: keep us safe than it be accurate. Safe today, accurate mm. tomorrow. Mm. Mhm. You know, as I started to to think about this
2: and and look at what you're doing, uh, I I mean, this this is something that everyone could
3: benefit from, it, to help build confidence and credibility as you point out. Yeah, absolutely. Not only confidence and credibility that somebody else has in you, but confidence
1: and credibility in yourself. The way that you move, the way that you perform has a profound effect on the way that you see yourself. And you'll have noticed that, you know, when you wear something, for example, that causes your body to move in a certain way, or you feel a certain way, you may feel more confident because of that external image that you know you're putting out. So there's nothing untrue or false about an external image that you create um it's either beneficial for other people or it isn't it's either there to cause a good effect for others or a bad effect for others
2: so everyone could take advantage of this i was thinking uh you know you've worked with politicians you've worked with uh ceos etc etc um i'm wondering about other performers Musicians, actors. Yeah, you know those. Have you have you worked with musicians, actors, other people? Yes,
1: musicians and actors. I've worked with musicians on how they might sit or stand with their instrument in -hmm. order to get a more confident performance and confident tone, and also new and different tonalities and a more exciting performance. I've worked with actors all over the globe, not only on their performances within films and television and theatre, but also their performance on the red carpet and in front of uh, interviewees. Mm. I've worked with therapists, you know, people who have to Mm. be in a room with others
3: in order to help them um, navigate the world around them. I mean, really all sorts of people. And is this something you, you do on your own? Do you have people that work with you or is this just you on your own going around and doing this? Well, I have some partners who uh, work in different languages that I don't mm. have. So they're able
1: to get across my, my, my techniques to people who are uh, you know English is not going to be their best or their first language and and being English we're not very good at other <laughs> languages on the whole so I'm English is the only one I speak and I'm, I'm not so good at that either uh, being dyslexic <laughs> I'm not super good at reading or writing it but I'm pretty good at saying it so I have other people who can do uh, other languages but ultimately no it's Gen- generally, me, just me, in the room with an individual or many, because you know it can be quite a private thing as well. Certainly, when mm. you're one to one, you're really mm-hmm. dealing with with people's worries about their uh, their confidence and how they come across. And to have lots of people in the room wouldn't really help.
2: Right, understood. Uh, going back to the the idea of working with someone to to gain that confidence, credibility, and things like that that we talked about, I'm wondering you know especially in in the world of, of politics and and other areas um and i'm i'm trying to to trying to figure out how to how to say this because it, is there is there an opportunity for people to use this uh, beyond just communication
3: uh, and and confidence and credibility um, manipulation yeah absolutely well of course of course it's a tool like any other so
1: it's like saying you know, this hammer that I could put it, use a nail to to put in a, uh, you know, a nail into a wall and you could hang your coat up on it, or I could hit you over the head with it. So mm. tools can be used for good reasons or good outcomes or bad reasons and bad outcomes. Mm. You're either trying to harm people with them or help people with them. And powerful tools, I think you'll agree, can be used for good or harm. And the tools that I train people in to influence and persuade, of course, they can be used in order to manipulate people, to lie to them if you wanted to. And, and I can't really be the arbiter of whether you're going to use them for good or bad. You really need to decide whether you have good intentions around this or bad intentions around this and, and look, over, look after your own morality uh, around that. But the, the tools are free. Look, you already have the tools mm. you just, and you're already using them unconsciously. Right. All I'm training people to do is do it consciously because that can cause them to tell the truth really well on purpose rather Mm -hmm. than kind of okay by accident. And yeah, sure, they could lie now purposely even better. But you must understand (laughs) that lying is one of our most important social skills. Mm. If you can't lie, then, or accept a lie, then you won't be part of a large organization or group Mm. or family. You have to be able to, you know, imagine a situation whereby somebody's telling you a great story and you know, they're kind of exaggerating, (laughs) but you decide, you know what, I'm not going to accept this, this lying, this exaggeration. I'm going to stop this and say, you're just exaggerating there. Well, you'd spoil every great story that your friends Mm. have ever told you. And you'd be soon have no friends, (laughs) You must be able to lie. You must be able to accept lies. You must be able to tell the
3: truth. And you must be able to accept the truth. And it's best to do all of that really well consciously. Nicely said. Nicely said. Now, when I when I went to
2: your website and uh, saw you giving some of those little teasers that you put out there, I noticed something in the back of your of your room on the wall. It, it was a it was a poster.
3: It said "Truth and Lies: What People Are Really Thinking." Mm. What what? Why is that there? Yeah. So that's uh, my latest book that I co-authored with Tracy
1: Thompson. Uh, mm-hmm. "Truth and Lies: What People Are Really Thinking." Uh, it's a book really about critical thinking disguised as a book on how to read body language. The publishers came to us and said, would you write a book about reading body language? And I thought to myself, it's, that's not really as much help as people really think it's going to be. Mm. And there's lots of books on reading body language out there. But all the same, people like books on reading body language. And it's fascinating, this idea that we might be able to read other people like a book that's not really true. All we can do is think more accurately, think more critically about the behaviors we see in other people and start to try and understand them better rather than thinking we could have the upper hand on them by being able to secretly read what's going on in their mind. That's just not possible. And I've really looked into this. There are are no mind readers out there. But there are some people who can think better, more cleverly, more accurately about other people and get closer to the truth. And and that's what truth and lies gets across
3: to people, the process Mm. of critical thinking about others. Mm. Nice. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in
2: Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Mark Bowden, and as the founder and communication training company Truth Lane. His clients include leading business people, teams and politicians, presidents and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, prime ministers of G7 powers. He's a best-selling author of four books on the subject of body language and human behavior, uh, with his first book, Winning Body Language, now translated into five different languages. So, Mark, now... We find ourselves in a COVID-19 situation. We're in lockdown. We're doing a lot more communication, uh, as, such as we are, uh, using Zoom and, and, uh, and, and finding ourselves more distance from people. Um, how has that changed or has it changed uh, the, kind of, the kind of body language that we need to uh, translate or, or, or uh, you know, do with people uh, in, 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 our, in our transactions, our daily transactions with people?
1: Yeah, so what you notice is as we start to use devices, technology to communicate through this situation, we start to lack some of the nonverbal data. Think, for example, about email. Email really has very little nonverbal data in it. You can't see the person as they're typing out that message. Uh, You can only imagine what they might be thinking and feeling as you read out the message that they sent you. And when insufficient nonverbal data, we tend to default to negatives. We don't think the best of the message. We tend Mm. to think the worst of it, or we catastrophize Mm. around it. That's just the way our instinct works when it doesn't have enough non-verbal data. Better to be safe than sorry. So, for example, if I send you an email and it's just the header and it says "See me tomorrow, 3:30," and let's just say we work in an organisation and, and I have power, some perceived power over you, and there's nothing in the rest of the body of the email. You probably don't think it's going to be a good meeting. You probably think it's going to be a bad meeting. Mm. But if I can get on a video call with you and you can see my face during this this and, and say, can you see me tomorrow three thirty? And and you see the smile on my face, then maybe that's going to be better for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we can't see people's face because they're masked up Mm will tend to not default to positives around them, will tend to default to negatives around them, or at least our instinct will, and our instinct rules our life. So you've got to find ways of showing more behavioral um, indicators in the rest of your body, knowing that your mouth, which is an extremely important part of the body Mm -hmm. for looking at people's emotions, isn't being shown. So when insufficient data, we default to negatives. And that's important in this current covid environment
2: you just mentioned masks and of course that's what we're doing when we're out and about these days uh, going out in public we have our faces covered you just mentioned that we need to show more in terms of the rest of our bodies our eyes of course become extremely important in those exchanges are you seeing a difference and and what do you find we're doing now in these exchanges
1: so the first response that i saw which is a classic uh, social mammalian response around Um, social danger or social embarrassment is first of all, trying to hide the eyes or look away, break eye contact with people mm-hmm. because it's embarrassing and it's just very, mm. very weird. It's the social mammalian <laughs> idea of something bad is happening. I may be responsible for it. So if I look away, I can't see you, which means you can't see me. It's a weird thing. My little dog does it. You know, when mm. she's done something that she perceives <laughs> is bad or or she hears, you know, a downward intonation in my voice right. instructing her that, so, that mm. I'm commanding her and something wasn't right there, she'll look away or she'll put a paw over her, her, her eyes to say, you know what, I can't see you. So I think <laughs> you're not here. So this can't really be happening. So I've noticed that as you walk along the street in, in, in a neighborhood where normally people might have looked you in the eye and said, hello, people are masked up and mm. they look away from you as they Mm -hmm. cross the road to kind of say, "Um, I know you, you're a neighbor, this is really odd and embarrassing. I'm not here, you're not here, this isn't happening. And I think we have to kind of play to the opposite of that. We've maybe got to make a little more eye contact with people and show more of our eyes and more of our open body language, still keeping our face covered, Absolutely, that's really important. But what else can we show of ourselves and not use that mammalian kind of instinct of pretending we're not there?
2: Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Mark, this has been really fascinating speaking with you, and I really thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, What else? Can we can we share with people about this situation that you've noticed in terms of just uh, communicating with each other? Because like you said, we're, we're kind of uh, backing away. We're, we're covered up. We can't really see each other that well anymore when
3: they're out, out and about. Um, anything else come to mind? Well of course if you, if people can't see your body language they'll default to negatives about your feeling and
1: intention you need to use your words more and mm. words that describe your feeling and intention towards them as you're communicating otherwise i guarantee they will catastrophize or default to negatives so as you approach somebody. Use a, use a feeling word or a, a word that evaluates the, the situation. Like, oh, great to see you. I'm really happy to see you today. So that was evaluative, great, happy, because they can't tell. They can't see part of mm. your face. And so mm.
3: they're more likely to default to negative. So evaluative words, feeling words, intentional words, use more of them. That sounds like great advice, Mark. Thank
2: you so much for joining us. Listen, if people are interested in finding out more about you, or maybe maybe, maybe
3: making contact to try and uh, perhaps get some training, uh, how can they reach you? Yeah, so you'll find me at truthplane.com, T-R-U-T-H-P-L-A-N-E, or just put Truthplane into Google. You'll find me or just Mark Bowden into Google, and up I come. All right. That's great. Mark, thanks again for speaking with us and uh,
2: look forward to speaking with you again at some point in the future. Happy to speak to you anytime, David. All right, Mark Bowden, he is a leading expert in body language, best-selling author, and a keynote speaker at the TEDx Toronto. And and, uh, as you heard, uh, he has uh, spoken with many and influenced many people uh, to give them training in body language right around the world. Uh, So it was great speaking with him today. And once again, you heard Mark say, Mark Bowden, that's Mark B-O-W-D-E-N, if you want to get a hold of him, and uh, it's, uh, it's Truth Plain, if you want to find out more. Thanks again for listening. This has been Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.